Pod. My name is Indigo Trigg-Hauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Major General Kristen Lund is a retired general in the Norwegian Army. In 2014, she became the first woman force commander in UN history in the United Nations forces in Cyprus. She has an outstanding wealth of experience from international missions, starting with UNIFIL in Lebanon and continuing with various UN missions and international operations in Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Operation Desert Storm, the Balkans, and Afghanistan. She's also been a member of the Nordic Women Mediators Network since 2015, and in 2017 she was appointed Head of Mission Chief of Staff for the United Nations True Supervision Organization based in Jerusalem. That same year she became a UN Women Champion. She holds a master's degree in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College, and having recently retired from the Norwegian Armed Forces, she's now Prio's latest practitioner-in-residence. Welcome, Kristen Lund. Um, I'm very excited to have you here. You're a practitioner-in-residence uh, at Prio, um, so we only have you for a short period of time, and it's so wonderful that I get to talk to you for this podcast. Um, you've had a very long and distinguished career in the military, but I can imagine it was very challenging. You were the first person, the first woman to to do a lot of things in the military. You, you've had a career of firsts, is how one of our colleagues, Johanna, put it. Um, what is it that kept you in the military? What is it that, that drove you to stay? Sometimes I wonder that myself too, but uh, <laughs> but of course um, the military is um, uh, the, the good thing. I mean, you had to work hard, and um, and it was tough, and it took me fifteen years in a way to find my own uh, leader philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, how to be, you know, how to be. Because in the beginning you had to uh, look for the men, you know, their uh, their values and so on to be able to advance. So that was pretty, you know, it took time. But I think that the the combination of being in school, then you go out and have practice, and then you go back again. You know, you have a long life. You know, my last uh, my last school was uh, at um, the U.S. Army War College, and you know, and I, you know, that was in two thousand and seven, uh, and and you know, from and backwards, I've been more or less, you know, working uh, three four years, and then you go, and that's a fantastic place to be. And, and it's all paid for. So, um, and another thing in the military, you work two to four year in one position and then you move on. So in one way, you will never be uh, kind of bored because you can always apply for positions you like or you think is, uh, is smart uh, for your career. Uh, what was it like in your beginning training, I mean, how how were you received uh, being a woman? And uh, <laughs> you're smiling, so yeah, I'm, I can imagine. I mean, it, it, I'm sure it was wonderful, but yeah, how was that? I, I, first of all, I think it's good for us humans. We remember the good things, and mm. very often we forget the hard. That's but a very to, good trait to have. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know, um, in the beginning, uh, first of all, you got kind of harassed that you know why should you be here and. And you, uh, and they said you. Well, you were uh, taken in by a quota, you know, and uh, and uh, so you felt, you know, that that uh, you were not as good as uh, the other guys. But um, 
But uh, and then of course when you got out after the after the officer Kennedy school, you had to prove that you could do the job, and and you were always tested, and they wanted to test the women all the time, uh, and I think. Uh, when you are in a squad, an infantry squad, you don't put the machine gun on the smallest person. You put the machine gun on the one that is good to shoot with the machine gun and, and that is strong enough, you know, to, to carry that, you know, it's a mixture. Mm. So so that was, you know, often uh, often you, you realize that you are put on a test all the time. And I, I think that for me being the first so many times, a lot of pressure had been put on my soul, uh, shoulders, but for me, in one way, that also have uh, kept me going. And 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 you know, when I didn't get into the right uh, academy, uh, I kind of got this uh, kick in my back here, you know, <laughs> that really pushed me. So I will show them that it's possible to do it. Uh, you know, you don't always need to have the right schools uh, as long as you perform well. How do you think uh, women's roles in the military, and I guess specifically the Norwegian military, um, have changed over the course of your career? Or maybe how have they not changed? A lot of things have changed to the better, much better. And I think that uh, the men that really believes in themselves, they know that uh, to actually to solve the mission we are given, uh, if it's at home or actually abroad, you need both. Uh, genders and and I think that's that's very well, but still we see when there has been surveys that there are still some harassments uh, going on and that that is not good. Mm. So we we still have a lot to to work and also we have uh, we had to work on the reten- uh, retention when it comes to officers uh, since we have now the university. Um, conscription, uh, you know, uh, at uh, among the soldiers, you know, we get close up to thirty percent. But as uh, uh, as officers, we only have about fifteen, so we still need to to work on that. So you mentioned your last uh, military education was in the U.S. Mm. Um, how do you think gender roles in the military were were maybe different or similar um, between the U.S. and Norway? How were you? How did you feel you were received there? I was received very well. And, you know, I was also the first woman there uh, as an international fellow uh, at uh, the War Academy. Uh, So I got a lot of attention. And also because uh, maybe I'm used to it, I don't know. But, you know, I was also elected as the president for all the international students. So that helped me also in a way uh, to have, you know, access to the leadership at the school. So I got a very good connection. And, and actually the, the superintendent or the, the, the commander, he's, uh, and his wife is still very good friends. And I uh, actually have seen them nearly every year since I left uh, the academy. So, so some long-lasting connections. Absolutely. But, but it was, you know, uh, for me, why I think I was actually selected was because among the international students, also among the Americans, I was the one with the most deployments. I have been deployed to so many, especially of the uh, of the Arabic country. So they supported, you know, me because I, you know, when you can come to them and say hello and and thank you in their own language, they, you know, that's a confidence building uh, measure. And and so they, in a way, saw that this woman, even though I was a woman, uh, that they, you know, she has been in my country and she talks nice about it. And so they 
selected me, you know, because it was a vote. So it was that was quite uh, uh, heartwarming, you know, for me because uh, then you see all the deployments gave something back. Definitely. And so you mentioned confidence building, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your uh, experience in Afghanistan because you you've talked a little bit about this uh, at Oslo Pax last mm. week, and I was extremely intrigued. Um, when you talked about how you were able to build bridges between different communities. And mm. you said that you were one of the only people that could actually access um, mm. all the people in the country. Can you tell mm. me a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, uh, you know, when I deployed to Afghanistan in 2003-2004, that was the first contingent of uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's deployment there, NATO. And they didn't have any plans when it uh, came to, to, to gender or... Uh, in their operation plan. So when we got there, we saw this huge um, uh, mismatch uh, that, you know, we could access in uniform, you can access, you know, men. But because we couldn't uh, uh, speak the language, we couldn't access them, uh, most of the women. So so then we, we get, uh, started to have this uh, we, every Tuesday, we invited uh, um, uh, you know people from ambassad- um, uh, embassies and, and NGOs to where we made nice food, and then um, so then we got in contact, and then we started on this uh, sauna evenings. <laughs> uh, we were able, uh, you know, because of Sweden, uh, Finland, and Norway, we were very much together mm. uh, and we uh, were able to borrow for the, the women once a week and then we invited uh, you know the NGOs there to build confidence you know and, and trust and then you know after a little while we were able to borrow some of uh, their female interpreters because uh, NATO didn't bring or hired any female uh, interpreters and then, because we felt when we were around, the, uh, the women wanted to talk to us. And when we were able, we could access, for example, we accessed the women park in Kabul uh, as uh, the first, uh, you know, foreigners to go in there to talk to, to the women, but also in the villages. And then, you know, we got total different information that was very important because they were afraid, you know, they didn't want to have... Uh, you know, Taliban or other fractures that could jeopardize uh, their kids and the security. So they they talked about these things, and and then you got a much more holistic picture of the security situation, and you also uh, got to know what are the women's concern because we know that uh, conflict and war uh, have a different impact on women uh, than men. So then, you know, of course, it was uh, security was kind of number one, but it was also uh, education and school. No, education and and health Mm. was kind of the two other big issues. Um, And of course, then, you know, that we could provide that. And and that also led to that uh, ISAF uh, and NATO then uh, provided after we have been there, uh, you know, uh, an annex to the the new uh, operation plan where they actually considered uh, the gender and the importance of using women as a segment uh, for security uh, and and, and other things. It's pretty incredible to think that, I mean, this was so recent and yet gender was not a major concern for NATO and and only being able to communicate with half of the population. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> it was quite amazing. And, and I remember because I at that time in 2000 and 
too, I uh, I became uh, yeah the um, the uh, NATO had a women um, uh, committee, and now they changed to another name. But but at that time I was the become the president in two thousand and five. And when you are the president, you you have all the NATO countries and you kind of update and so on. And I kind of switched, you know, from maternity and all these other stuff to more operational focus. And then I, you know, and then you come in front of the military committee in NATO and you give a kind of report from this report, uh, from this committee. And I said, you know, straightforward, and you can imagine that the four-star general and all the other generals said that that, uh, NATO is not solving uh, their mission there. Um, because they're only addressing 50% of the population. So we are not fulfilling. And I think that they were kind of a little shocked uh, for me to say that, but I, I, I meant it. We didn't. And um, and then uh, luckily I know because I, I was back in 2005, also to Afghanistan in 2008, Mm. And I saw then, you know, that it was changes yes. and, and to the positive. So uh, so I had to go and check some of the projects and, and when you had the dialogue with other women in Afghanistan. And that was so nice to see. And then you had the young ones that really want to kind of jump over the Ministry uh, of Women Affairs and do things themselves because they thought everything took so long time. So that was also interesting to see. And of course... A lot of them wanted to, uh, they asked how it is in the other part of the world. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's not easy when you are standing in front of 400 young girls at a school that you are uh, celebrating and opening and, and see that, you know, what's their future and, and what should you tell them? Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my message was, you know, education is always good because if you have education, uh, very often, or, or you have a better chance of getting a job. Uh, with all of this experience, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the uh, current negotiations with the Taliban. I mean, it's interesting that there are four women who are trying to represent, as you say, 50% of the population's interests. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it, first of all, it's very important that those four are there. But also, that it's so typical uh, that you know now we put a lot of pressure on them. Mm. Um, and and if I can just, I will, I will come back to that. But I also a comparison in in Lebanon, it was also four ministers, female ministers, uh, in their government, the, the former one. And uh, and and they were, you know, their priority number one was to get a law that forbid. Um, child uh, uh, marriage, you know, because in in Lebanon now you can marry uh, a girl, uh, you know, if she is four years old, mm. and and that was their priority number one. So so, and then you can imagine uh, when you go out to to uh, that is in Lebanon that we look like is pretty more advanced when it comes to you know the Middle East, Paris, and so on. But then you go to Afghanistan, and I think uh, Taliban, you know, they can, they have to change their views of women because now uh, so many women have got, you know, back to school, back to their education. They have their freedom, and you know, uh, they can 
fly a kite. I mean, that also yes, for boys, but you know, they have all these other stuff. So, so I think that, um, that uh, it will be very interesting and I'm trying to follow a little bit um, because um, I, I think it's like give and take sometimes, you know, to have a secure uh, environment and then you have less freedom. Is that better than, you know, having a constant fear uh, that you can be killed or things can, you know, your school can be blown up? Mm. Um, it's hard to tell. And, 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 and the best to, to, to say uh, something about it is the people that are there. But when you when we heard about this uh, one woman that was, I think, in, in the television not long ago talking about uh, she was in Dua. And, and I think it's um, uh, I, I really hope that they, they are able to go, uh, get things through because they have to because uh, uh, they cannot go back. To, uh, to the Taliban time and I think also Taliban understand that if they're going to to kind of also have a life yeah in 2014 you were appointed the first female commander of peacekeeping forces in the UN and you worked in Cyprus for two years um, what changed under your command there well uh, within the military uh, to start with that I think a lot changed because I I didn't accept, for example, that they have put in one contingent, they put the women uh, dorm outside the camp. And I said, they have to go in. This is a security risk, you know. They thought they would spare the women, you know, so they can, you know, have, uh, you know, yeah, they can move around free. I don't know the, the <laughs> reason, but I I didn't, um, I didn't ex- uh, accept that. So they had to move and they had to, of course, get more evolution containers inside and, and, and so on. But that's, uh, that is possible to do. That's one thing. All the military skills competitions had to be mixed teams. That oh, was okay. new. Yes. So, uh, so that's good. All the, uh, the 26 or 26 or was it 46? I think it was 26 positions around the whole 180 kilometers long buffer zone had to accommodate both sex or both genders. Mm. That was not the case. That could just be a simple thing, you know, to put the curtain uh, on where you have the uh, pissoirs, you know, um, and then, you know, the the showers, then you can lock the, the door to the showers. I mean, there's uh, small things to fix. Yeah. And they uh, make a separation wall in the containers so you can have... So there is easy uh and and so but uh, it took two years Hmm. i also changed in a way uh to have a much more operational focus so everybody when i got there um because the situation has been so calm um the soldiers didn't have dedicated weapons they just have stored them and i said no way you had to have a dedicated weapon uh because you had to train with that weapon so then i kind of organized so every um, every uh, second week they had to come in and shoot because we only had one uh, shooting range. So so that changed on operational. I also had, uh, I think, a much closer uh, talk with my sector commanders where because this was the time where there was a lot of uh, um, uh, sexual, um, uh, sexual abuse and, and harassments in Africa, in the African mission done by UN and so forth. So it was a lot of messages from the headquarters 
and I really talked very close to these uh, these uh, and all of course men. They were kind of a little shocked that a general could you know talk about survival sex and all these things that they need to understand, and and that also uh, Cyprus was a kind of a transit for human trafficking mm. in the Middle East. So we even had you know ISIS going through. Uh, so it was kind of. Uh, important for them and and of course then we had to do measures when especially in the end of the contingents that you make you know you maybe you put curfew uh, from 11 and so forth Um, and it was I I, I think it was very uh, it has been I I think I really tightened the reins a little uh, when I got there Mm. another thing that was so so great was that we had um the head of mission, uh, Lisa Butnaim, uh American, she, uh, you know, she, and I was totally, you know, in line. And so she really encouraged me to and empowered me to do a lot of things. And that's why I also engaged in all those doors that suddenly opened because I was a, few, a female. I was the first. So that gave me a lot of uh, benefits. And I, I, I took those benefits and engaged in society because I felt that uh, when I have kind of got the military on, on uh, it was so much more to do. And, you know, um, getting into the civilian part of society, you really get to know um, that country much better. And I think also in that respect, um, um, build confidence in that, uh, that way. It's funny because when you talk about the things that you changed, whether that's communicating better with civilians or changing something as simple as as a bathroom situation in, in yeah. the camp, um, it seems so straightforward and sort of common sense. Mm. But obviously it, it wasn't. It clearly yeah. wasn't because it, it took you and I'm sure other people um, to change that. And I don't want to essentialize gender or say that women are more likely to do one thing or the other, but why do you think that is i mean again it just seems it seems so clear that you would go in and you you saw these things that you yeah. could change very easily i you know i was surprised uh, what kind of power i actually got as a force commander that was i was a little taken by that and and then i wondered you know i can i can change things i can do it you know uh, things that i uh, felt myself that was missing so then i went and and i did it mm. and and uh, and i think uh, that was also, uh, and also I was also during my time at Cyprus. I was also invited into the Nordic Women Mediators Network, and in a way, and focusing on on women and what we can do. So I also invited them uh, down uh, to uh, to Cyprus on their first uh, field trip, uh, because I was in contact with the. the uh, the kind of gender advisory team, uh, the technical committee on uh, e- uh, gender equality that was a part of the peace process. Uh, there was a Norwegian Espen Barteide uh, peace envoy. So, I, you know, I was, uh, and I knew him from before. So we were like a team. And then, so I, you know, I can also mix uh, the, the the Nordic women mediators into uh, the leaders um, and the first ladies and so on and and um, uh, to exchange uh, experiences and get some uh, some good um, uh, some good um, uh, kind of um, 
you know, experiences and lesson learned and so on. Mm. And now, as you know, uh, here in Prio, we are supporting uh, Cyprus on their network mm. uh, as the global or the, um, that's the, the Mediterranean network. So, uh, so it's, it's quite, you know, uh, you, I put some seeds there. Uh, that's what I hope. And then, you know, yeah. see now <laughs> that now it has come that they have their own network mm. and, and try. And, and by that, I think also they have a, a stronger voice. Mm. And that's sometimes the challenge when you are out there. There are so many groups and they are not united. So they don't have that strong voice. Um, so so uh, that has also been uh, some of my... Uh, my um, uh, recommendations, you know, that they have to, to to stick together, find what they have in common, and and play on that. And and when they get those things through, then you can start on the more uh, separate things that they want to to uh, to fight for. Mm. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Uh, I could talk to you much longer, <laughs> and I have in the past. Um, but I was just wondering if you could close with some thoughts on what I think is one of your most interesting jobs and a uh, recent job, which was when you uh, took on the 2017 appointment as first female UN leader in the Middle East, heading the United Nations uh, True Supervision Organization. And you are a practitioner, and that is your title here at PRIO. So I'm wondering, what kind of lessons did you learn there that you would um, maybe give to, to other people, such as in the Nordic Women Meteors Network, but, but really anyone in this kind of work? Um... It's the same in the Middle East, as I uh, said, in a way, to my colleagues. Uh, my most important weapon is your mouth, uh, you know, is communication and to build trust. Um, if you don't have the trust, uh, you will not be able to uh, to move any uh, people uh, or their thoughts. So so that's uh, my, my, my biggest. And, and you have to be humble. Um, and uh, you have to be interesting, interested, sorry, in the different countries' uh, culture. Uh, that was really important for me. So I had to travel around to, to see things. So in a way, because this small talk is always so important. So uh, building trust for me, uh, thinking about uh, that, that your mouth uh, is your kind of biggest uh, or the most important uh, weapon. That I said, even though they had weapons in Cyprus, your mouth is your weapon. It's not your weapon physically. Mm. Uh, then you lost. Mm. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's so interesting to hear you talk about your career. Thank you very much. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trighauger. With help this week with editing and writing from our excellent intern, Yaoni Santertun. Thanks, Yaoni. Music by Martin Lundemann.